All right, turn with me, please, to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. If you're still struggling to find Ezra, just remember, go to Psalms and go further left. <laughs> Ezra chapter 9. Next week will be in Nehemiah, so you don't have to go as far left. Ezra chapter 9. Now, Wednesday, we had a chance. Um, we, we ha we're, our church is part of what is called the Wellington Waterloo Association of the Fellowship. And on Wednesday, we got together in a town called Baden. Anybody know where Baden is? Good. All right. There's a church planter who's trying to plant a church in Baden. His name is Nathan Captain. And Nathan said, on the surface, Baden looks like an idyllic town with healthy families. Statistics say that 67% of the population are married couples with children. And only 3% Divorce, or there are only 3% of the population that are divorced. That's on the surface. When you dive beneath the surface of the demographics, you learn that the reason Baden has a low divorce rate is that when people get divorced, they leave the town of Baden. And so it doesn't get reflected in the statistics. In the same way, the people during Ezra's time would have thought that things were going well in Israel, in Jerusalem. Sure, they were under the domination of the Persian Empire, but the temple had been rebuilt. The Persian Empire, Art Artaxerxes, was paying for the temple worship. And Ezra, whom Artaxerxes had sent to oversee things in Jerusalem was appointing judges who were going to enforce God's laws in Israel. Things were going well. But we will find that God's Word exposed their true condition. So let's read Ezra chapter 9, verse 1 up to verse 15. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, 
I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, none of us can stand in your presence. This is the word of the Lord. You will note that as Ezra taught God's word to his people, this happens, this confession happens about four months after Ezra had arrived. And I guess we can say that as they heard God's word, the people of God were confronted with their sin. See, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 echoes deliberately the words of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 to verse 4, especially when they talk of a, about Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Amorites. Some of those tribes or some of those peoples were no longer in existence at that time. But they're echoing the language of Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4 because they recognize that they had disobeyed God's command not to intermarry with the pagan nations around them. Now, please understand, this is not about racial purity. I remember I, I was, after my first year in seminary, we traveled for the seminary where Joel and I were studying, and we were in Thunder Bay, and I stayed with a guy um, who was very kind to me. And after dinner, we were chatting, and he said, Brother, don't you think that the biggest sin of our day is the mixing of races? I'm like, 
say what? <laughs> and, and by the grace of God, I was able to say, well, you know, in Matthew 1, Jesus' ancestry had um, Rahab and Ruth. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabitess. So maybe it's not a sin. And, you know, we laughed it at that. I went to bed. I knew he wasn't a racist. He had me in his house. <laughs> and, and the following morning, over breakfast, he said, you know, brother, I, I thought about what you said. Um, yeah, I guess it's, I guess you're right. It's not sin. <laughs> I, I just heard it on the radio. <laughs> So let, let's be clear, okay? <laughs> the issue there was not the mixing of races. The Bible's account of Adam as the father of all humans means that we are all human beings. And we are all equally image bearers of God. So Joel and I are not living in sin. <laughs> the issue in Ezra 9 was moral and spiritual purity. You see that in verse 1. The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. In fact, if you read this account in light of Malachi 2, 11 to 16, it is very possible that these men, these leaders compounded their sin by divorcing their Israelite wives in order to marry pagan wives so that they could advance socially and financially. That's cold. But at the very least, their intermarriage with pagans would have potentially led them into idolatry, as good old King Solomon demonstrated. So that the people of God were in danger of losing their distinctiveness. It was true then, it is still true today. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 tells us not to marry unbelievers. It is not because Christians are in any way, shape, or form superior. It is because it can compromise our faithfulness to God. Now that being said, Paul and Peter both hold out the hope that unbelieving spouses would be converted through the witness of their godly spouses. But let us focus on the main point of Ezra chapter 9. The point is that God's word should confront us just as it exposed Ezra's people during that time. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says God's word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And underlying this description of God's word is the reality that you and I are all sinners needing correction. None of us are okay. And God has graciously given us his word in order to reveal our brokenness. Point us to Jesus. And in so doing, beautify us. And as believers, we live in the already not yet that is to say, God has already declared us righteous in His sight, but He is also still in the process that never ends, that extends throughout our lives, of making us actually righteous. And 
please let us not sugarcoat or obfuscate. The first step to getting better is knowing what is wrong with you, not what's wrong with your neighbor, right? And that's why Ezra confessed specific sins. He named them. And if our exposure to the Bible isn't confronting us with our specific, particular, special sins that are dear to our own hearts, we're not listening properly. I remember at my former church, we, we read through a book called Respectable Sins, written by Jerry Bridges. And one of the people in my small group, when we got together, said, oh, you mean we're talking about me again? <laughs> and that's how God's Word needs to be for us. It needs to be a mirror exposing the various ways that we have sinned against God. And this isn't God being nitpicky or overbearing. This is actually God loving us as he shows us our sin so that we may run back to him in repentance. Martin Luther rightly points out in his 95 Thesis, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so we need to take God's word seriously. This is God himself addressing you and me. This is the attitude that Ezra describes in chapter 9 verse 4 as trembling at the words of the God of Israel. And so reverence for God led Ezra to tear his clothes and pull out his hair. He was so distraught at the people's sin, he sat dumbfounded for several hours until the evening sacrifice. And as you read his prayer, his prayer simply acknowledges the grace of God and the righteousness of God and their guilt. He's so ashamed that their sin that he could not even petition God. It's all confession. But th this is foreign to us, isn't it? We, hard, we, we find it hard to relate to his distress because I think deep down, myself included, we don't take seriously enough the reality that God is holy and demands that his people be holy. We often take a look at our sin in terms of how it affects our lives. So if we can get the 11th commandment to follow or to, to apply, you, you know the 11th commandment, right? Thou shalt not get caught. It's fine. If I don't get caught, it's all good. We fail to reckon with how our sin, first and foremost, is an offense against God. Ezra certainly understood how God views sin. You notice in verse 6, chapter 9, verse 6, how his prayer of confession acknowledges their guilt before God. Look at verse 6. I am too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift up my eyes to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great because of our sins. We 
And our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is this day. He recognizes that God is just to punish them. In fact, in verse 13, he realizes, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved. So that verse 8 to verse 10 recognizes that their sin against God was a betrayal of the grace of God. Verse 8, but now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Verse 10. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets. They had shown gross ingratitude for God's grace, towards God's grace that had reversed their exile. Brothers and sisters, this side of the cross, every time we sin, we show gross ingratitude for the self-giving of our Lord Jesus on the cross. And that's why we ought to be broken every time we recognize that we have sinned. Forget what other people think. It's all about what God thinks of what we've done. And I find it fascinating that Ezra actually includes himself in the indictment. Even if he was blameless, of the sin. In fact, he wasn't even there when the intermarriage happened. We are responsible for our own sin. But Ezra's prayer shows us that we, there is such a thing as communal solidarity. As Paul would put it, one person's sin affects the whole body. It's like leaven. That was true then. It is true today. So that we cannot simply think of a brother's sin as his own problem. It doesn't affect me, no. In fact, D.J.A. Kleins would say this, It is not simply that certain individuals have broken the law, but that the community has sinned in being the kind of community where such actions could occur and be tolerated. So that it was appropriate for Ezra to confess, to say, we have sinned. Because fundamentally, there is no room for self-righteousness in the church. We are all sinners. In fact, Paul Tripp points out, a moral high ground spirit will not make you patient, kind, nurturing, understanding, and forgiving. It won't make you listen well and with grace. In the face of someone's inadequacies, weaknesses, and failures, it won't make you reflect on your own. It won't make you assume the best or prevent you from thinking the worst. There is a buzz producing power in thinking that you're more righteous than others, but it's a false identity that will damage both you and the community. And I must confess, I was convicted of my own self-righteousness recently. I was reading a book whose argument I don't agree with, and I was really annoyed at the author. 
he, I felt his attitude towards unbelievers, towards non-Christians was very condescending. And then he was misreading scripture, so I was just, <laughs> But then I, I realized, having read Paul Tripp's book subsequently, I was offended by this author's tone because I myself am proud of my enlightened biblical attitude. And my annoyance at this author exposed my pride at my right understanding, which, well, I derived from reading the right scholars. Mind you, I still disagree with this brother. But I recognize that rather than condemning him and looking down on him, I needed to grieve and mourn over his errors. Because as a brother in Christ, I am still responsible to love, value, and respect him as a fellow believer. And brothers and sisters, we need to cultivate the humility that comes from knowing that we are forgiven sinners who owe everything to Christ if we are to bear witness to him properly. You see, Jesus was perfectly righteous, wasn't he? And yet he was known as the friend of sinners. Sinners were drawn to him. And he never looked down on them. He who had every reason to condemn never looked down on them. He received them with love while he pointed out their sinfulness. And here in this passage, Ezra chapter 9, Ezra's contrition helped the people acknowledge their sin and realize its implications before God. Look at chapter 10 verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. Imagine that scene. Ezra on his knees, on his face, crying, praying. A large crowd of Israel's men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. They repented. And we find out in chapter 10 that they rectify their actions. You see, repentance isn't just mourning over your guilt. It also involves restitution. It makes, involves making things right because you hate sin. You hate the sin you committed. And so the whole community in verse 3 resolved to put away their pagan wives and children. And, and let's admit, this is a hard passage because it sounds to us harsh and uncaring. But for that people at that time, it was the cost of purity. And we do well to take seriously Derek Thomas's wise assessment of the situation. He says, there can be no doubting that Ezra and the people's representative leaders, apart from the four mentioned in Ezra 10.15, Believe that what they did was the Lord's will. It is churlish. Churlish means disrespectful, arrogant, rude, boorish of us to second-guess their actions. 
even Nehemiah, who took a different course, did not thereby turn around and condemn his predecessor's actions. The difficulty of the situation that Ezra faced cannot provide us with a prescription for behavior. It merely describes for us what Ezra and his colleagues did. This is not a recipe for situational ethics, a moral code that is altogether relative and impossible to legislate. It merely suggests that there are situations of enormous complexity about which we do not have sufficient information to form an alternative viewpoint. There is a lesson for us here. Sometimes, our brothers and sisters are called on to make very difficult decisions. We may luxuriate in armchair criticism, but it is often better to keep our own reflections to ourselves. Remember, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. The text is meant to emphasize God's radical demand for purity because he is the thrice holy God. Jesus would put it this way, sin ensnares, and we must be so committed to living for him that we would cut off anything that hinders us from following him, even if it means plucking out our right eye or cutting off our right hand. That's why we have something called church discipline, because we recognize that sin destroys community. And we can never be a healthy church unless we are absolutely committed to holiness because we belong to this glorious and holy God. Moreover, we should care about the purity of the church because we are Christ's beautiful bride. That's what we're going to be, isn't it? And I, I'm, I'm reading through a book entitled The Loveliest Place, written by Dustin Bench. And this writer builds on the work of Jonathan Edwards. He says, The church is a gift from God to his son, so that the mutual joys between this bride and bridegroom are the end of creation. That's Jonathan Edwards, in quotation marks. Therefore, as the son is a reflection of his father, the church, as his eternal bride, is a reflection of the Son. When Christ lovingly looks upon his bride and exclaims that she is beautiful, he beholds the reflection of the everlasting glory and infinite love of his Father, who is the primary fountain from which all true beauty flows. Since Christ's ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high, there is no more brilliant exemplification of God's perfect beauty in this world than his church. Can you imagine? God could have chosen to make his beauty known exclusively through breathtaking landscapes, undulating oceans, and sublime sunsets. Instead, he has decided to display his radiance within the hearts of the crown of his creation, humanity. As a result, he has chosen a people his church, to reflect his glory to the world. The church is beautiful because God is beautiful. Can you imagine? That's you and me. The church is meant to reflect the beauty, the purity, the glory of the infinite, eternal, glorious God. 
And that's why repentance needs to be an integral part of the life of the church. Because repentance purifies the church. Repentance strengthens and beautifies the community as we cling to the gospel. You see, Ezra's community was able to deal with sin because they could hope in the mercy of God. Look at verse 2. As Ezra and the people wept, a man named Shechaniah spoke these precious words. And it is very possible that he was either the fruit of one of these pagan unions or one of the people implicated in the pagan unions. He says, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. And don't don't miss these words. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. And he was right. Because this same holy God who hates sin with all the passion of his perfect being is also the God who shows mercy for his name's sake. We know that because Daniel in chapter 9, verse 18 and 19, during the exile, knowing that the exile was about to, that that the 70 years God had allotted was almost over, prayed to God and said, God, we ask, not because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. You see, repentance isn't just mournfully admitting our sin and making restitution. Repentance culminates in returning to God against whom we have sinned. And the awesome part of this is that God has his arms wide open to receive us because he has never stopped loving us despite our sin. Isn't that the point of the prodigal son? Or perhaps the parable is more rightly named the parable of the loving father. In fact, If you doubt that God has his arms open wide, we look no further than the cross where God spared not his only son but gave himself up but gave him up for us all so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's why Jesus gave himself for us, died and rose again so that God might give us hope. See, we we need more than reminders of how to live. We need to repent of the ungodly ways in which we live. If we want the church to become healthy, we need to make repentance our lifestyle. I learned this a few years ago when a couple I dearly love stood before the church and confessed that they had committed fornication. It was hard on them. It was hard on the church. But the church came out of it strengthened as we mourned their sin and as we affirmed our continuing love for them. Because there, we saw the gospel being practiced in their repentance and in our taking them back into the fellowship. See, as we deal with our sin by repenting, 
the more we are gripped by the good news of Christ's unfailing love. And that's what causes us to grow. Conversely, when we sweep our sin under the rug, we form a big lump, right? Worse, we feed a malignant tumor. We stunt our growth and we kill the body. It's true for believers. It's true for the church. And it is even more true for those who would not acknowledge their need for Christ, who say, I'm okay, I'm fine. Friend, we've all known this. You can't be good on your own. You're never going to be good enough. You need to cast yourself on Christ, and we urge you to do so right now. See, the people of God were in grave danger during Ezra's time because every sin is a step down the slippery slope to apostasy. They were in danger. They were losing their distinctiveness. But God held them fast in his hand by exposing their sin and enabling them to repent. So it is for us. As we repent of our sin, we better understand the greatness of God's love and mercy towards us. And so Christ becomes more precious to us. And we are increasingly gripped by his love to love him back. And that same love of Christ then motivates us to serve him, to live for him. And that same love of Christ transforms our desires so that we hate sin more and more and love what pleases God more and more. And so my prayer for us is that we would be a church that is always repenting. For in the words of John Murray, the broken spirit and the contrite heart are abiding marks of the believing soul. So with that in mind, we're going to do something a little different today. As we close this message, I'd like us to go to the Lord individually and ask the Spirit of God to show us our own sins and to lead us to repentance. And as we pray silently individually, the team will sing a song of confession that cries out to God for mercy. You can make that your own prayer. Then after our time of individual confession, I'll close us in corporate confession. Team, would you come, please? Let's go to the Lord.